Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 241. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 241 you're listening to. My guest today is Dan Scheich, mastering engineer and owner of Tone and Volume Mastering, located in Nashville, Tennessee. And he's worked over the last 18 years with artists such as Third Eye Blind, Johnny Lang, Cody Jinks, Shannon Sanders, Big Daddy Weave, Secondhand Serenade, and Chris Jansen, just to name a few. We met at Addiction Studios. They were having a party over there during NAMM, and we were introduced. And long story short, now he's on the podcast. Yep, that's what happens. You go to a party, start talking to people. You find a lot of talented people there in Nashville, especially. So uh, super happy to bring you this interview. Dan Scheich, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's do a NAMM debriefing. So I stayed at my brother from another podcast house. That would be Lidge Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. Lidge was a gracious host. And joining us was our friend Chris Salim from Mixdown Online and his lovely wife. So uh, went to a lot of parties. Uh, Pete Lyman and Reed Shippen had a great party. Vance Powell and Mitch Dane had a great party over at Sputnik. And uh, let's see, where else did we go? We went to Addiction Studios. That's, that's where I met our guest today, Dan Scheich. And uh, somehow, I don't know how I managed to do this, but with the exception of some hot chicken over at Vance's party, I had Mexican food, I think, almost every day. Yeah, I ate Mexican food every day. With Okay, okay, not for breakfast. For breakfast, I had Cheerios and Chex Mix. But yeah, other than that, Mexican food every day. Lunch, dinner, at these parties... I don't know. Just worked out that way. And it was great. It's good food. Lots of networking, lots of business card handouts. You know, you just, you meet people and you just got to turn them on to the podcast. So lots of business cards going out. Uh, what else? I uh, got to go swimming at Vance Powell's house after Nam had ended, which was great. Day my flight left, he uh, invited myself and uh, fantastic mastering engineer Chris Athens over. That was a, a great thing to hang out with those guys. Got to see some fans of the show, uh, which was great. That's always a, a good time for me. It's just to chat with people who actually listen to the show. And uh, also see a lot of friends and peers. And I got to see a lot of former guests that have been on the show. Of course, uh, Ryan Hewitt, Vance, as I mentioned, Dane, uh, Mitch Dane, as I mentioned, Reed, Pete Lyman. Yeah. And, you know, when you go to these things, you... you you can go to it for social reasons, for business reasons. Obviously, I do it for both. Uh, you know, you talk to potential sponsors of the show. Um, but you also, it's what I concentrated on in this particular timeout was just to take my time and have really good conversations with people. And there's a lot of people that I talk to, some that I've known for years and some that I haven't known at all or just met. And uh, just take the time and have a solid conversation with them 
Saw some uh, great gear that I have ranted and raved about quite a bit. Of course, the Whitestone Audio P331 from uh, Dave Rosen and Kim Rosen. I, j- I can't wait to get my hands on that thing. Um, and the Flock Audio Patch Bay thing. I know that you all have heard of these things, but you should really check them out. It's a great pieces of gear that I think are different than what is out there. You know, in an age of so many damn clones and rehashing of the same crap it's just nice to see something new like that from flock and from whitestone that i think i think are great changes that we need to see so so that's it nam was fun it was great go if you can it's a fun time yeah there's gear but there's a lot of great people too so check it out Let's get to it. Dan Scheich here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dan, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So for the audience, Dan and I met at Addiction Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. I was there for NAM, and we had a mutual, several mutual friends, actually. <laughs> and so we met at that party and uh, figured out that we could do an interview. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you. So... With that said, let's start with the present. Today, you are a mastering engineer. You have tone and volume. Yeah, tone and volume mastering. How long have you been in business with that particular business with tone and volume? 18 years. One of the things I want to point out that I really, really like about when looking at your website that stuck out. (laughs) That it looks like a 15-year-old made it? Uh, No. (laughs) No, it's what you said. It says... Let me help you sound better. It will be easy. I will make sure you love it and you will always get me. No assistance, no lackeys, always me. And that stuck out to me in a great way because in this business, it's very typical that as the workload becomes heavier, many of our peers and friends tend to lean on other people to help run the operation. And there's, uh, I'm not casting any, you know, dispersions on that, but what made you decide to just have it be you? I don't know that it actually came from a calculated place. It was a place where I was doing work and I heard some people complain about this or that or saying they think that somebody maybe had an assistant do the work because they weren't maybe the highest priority or whatever. And I know tons of people that have great assistants and have tons of work to keep that assistant busy. But I'm not a big multi-room facility. There's not a few people here to give an assistant work. I'm just a dude. And I'm a little bit OCD about things. So I like that I have the hand in everything and anything that goes out is because I did it and not because somebody else made a mistake. Or if there is a mistake, I cop to it and fix it. Not that that happens a lot, but people like to hear from the guy with the name on the sign when there's an issue to be dealt with. So it kind of just came from a reaction to some things that other people have said and knowing that people like it. Where is your place located? Is it a separate building or is it at your home? It's at my home. I actually just built a new room over the winter. I'd been working in my home before in a room that I put together myself when we moved to this place eight years ago. The intent then was to build the room that I'm in now, which is a former garage converted to an in-law suite. And then this winter, we stripped it down to studs and subfloor. And redid the whole thing, replaced all the electrical, put new floors in, built all the all the treatments into the walls. It's not panels and stuff hung up. I've got five foot deep base traps in the corners and two feet of treatment in the back and 
it's pretty deep. So I had a, a designer come and you know do the design, and then a, a contractor crew do the build. In Nashville, is there any challenge in that? Yes, because doing a studio like mine is a huge job for a guy or two guys, but it's a tiny job for a big crew. And I found a good crew that was interested in doing a studio. My contractor's dad had spent a little time in the music business, so they were kind of interested in doing something a little different than just building an apartment complex or a house. So they took it on. They did a really nice job. The plans from my designer were incredibly detailed and left very few questions for the contractors. And they sat down here on this end of the house and worked on the studio while I worked in my old room on the other other end of the house. And about a quarter of every day was occupied with answering questions or managing my dogs because of the dudes working around. It was a really hectic, busy stretch that I don't wish upon anyone. But now that it's done, the room's great. I love it. And I'm not in the middle of our house anymore. And it's properly treated and it looks cool. It's been a, a really good thing. When you're working with a designer, is did you find it difficult to envision what it would look like based on 2D plans? Or were there 3D drawings or, or any kind of computer-generated thing to give you an idea of what it would really look like? It looks so much like the 3D rendering that he did that some people thought that my studio pictures were the renderings and vice versa. <laughs> like this dude, his name's Zach Marsengill, and he asked me to send him a bunch of pictures of studios that I like the look of. And as you would guess, there aren't a whole lot of mastering studio pictures on the internet, but I found studio pictures and home theater pictures and, you know, found things with the vibe that I like. And I just sent him like 10 pictures and he came back with this design and I was like, well, okay, <laughs> that's, that is cooler than anything I would have thought of. Let's do that. And there were a couple little tweaks here and there along the way, but pretty much, you know, we're 90% of the original plan aesthetically. And, you know, it sounds really good. The, the The physics of making sound work in a room is kind of numbers in a in a spreadsheet to get the treatment and stuff right. But getting that to work with an aesthetic that looks good is where he really came into his. How did you find him? The Facebook, like, who do you know that makes studios? <laughs> <laughs> the way it came down, though, is... He designed another room for one of my regular clients, and I went over there to help set him set up his speakers after his room was done. And I went in there and I looked around and I thought, well, this isn't going to sound good. This room's a giant cube and it's got hard surfaces all over the place. And I sat down and pushed play and I was like, well, this shouldn't sound this good. Went through and got the speakers set up and did the, the adjustment of the position and sub level and crossover and all that. And like... This sounds really good. And he had done his previous room, which I also liked. And I talked to a couple other people who he'd done designs for. And everybody was super, super happy. So I, mean, I talked to a few guys, but when Zach came over and we talked about acoustics, everything he said was lined up perfectly with everything I know about him. And we got on well and went from there. Plans, in my experience, and correct me if I'm wrong as it pertains to your experience, but Plans can be expensive within themselves. It's, I'm thinking five, 10, 15, you know, sometimes $20,000 just for plans in mm -hmm. some cases. What was your experience? If, and tell me, what, you know, whatever you're comfortable telling me. Well, I don't want to give anybody's rates away, but they, he was on the more affordable side of the numbers you just mentioned. 
and definitely not the 20 grand, which there are plenty of 20 grand plans out there, but to build a studio in my house that I'm not going to be in forever, I'm not spending 20 or 25 grand on a set of plans. And I wanted something that could be easily returned either to residential living or into a bitchin' home theater. So <laughs> if, if I left and somebody put a screen where my screen is and a couch where I sit right now, this would be one doozy of a home theater. It would look <laughs> cool. It's got pimped out lighting. It's not like one of those places where you see a custom studio install in a house for sale and go, like, what am I going to do with that? Like I move in and have a project. Like this could be useful on day one. As a mixing or a mastering room. Or a home say. theater if somebody wants to come here and doesn't work in the music business. I mean, 99% of home shoppers don't want a recording studio in their house. And my wife is a realtor and she loves to have something that can be kind of decommissioned and turned into basic residential pretty quickly. And we kind of came up with a, a good mix there. That's a bonus having a wife who's in real estate. Does not hurt. What were some of the things that you did to, to make it achieve that goal of, of transition to, at worst, a home theater for a non-studio person? Really, it was kind of, we moved a couple of walls. We moved access from a bathroom from this room into an adjoining room, and we closed up an exterior door because this in-law suite had a, a door to outside, which I was hoping would be client access, but it happened to be right in a rear corner where there needs to be a ton of acoustic treatment. So we closed that up. And I guess we put some power access and underfloor wiring stuff in there. But other than that, we didn't have to do much. It's just, it's all within the room. All the treatments are attached to a framework that can come out. So I could pop this whole thing out of here in a day, patch some holes, throw up a coat of paint, and it would just be back to normal. But it didn't really take any concessions. It's Everything's just built inside the room. So we both have a friend in common, my brother from another podcast, Lyd Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. And I'm sure you're well aware of his lawsuit with the city of Nashville over mm -hmm. his home studio. Does that have any effect on your decision making or is that something that you had considered? I did consider it. And in doing so, I got proper permitting to do it, to have a business in my house. The limitations for my particular area suit my business because 98% of my work comes and goes on the internet. Lidge has a much bigger issue to deal with because he's you know doing tracking dates when nine people show up and they come and go and they work all kinds of hours and I don't have people over here. So the, the, the main concern about studios in Nashville right now is a lot of people don't like the traffic and they don't like a bunch of cars parked in the yard and noise being made late at night. Like there are never any drums here. And my neighbors are far enough apart and I've got enough isolation that, I mean, I would deafen myself to make it loud enough for them to hear it. So I've got a really good little spot and my business doesn't really have the issues that are involved in the challenges that Lidge and other home studios in Nashville have. Got it. Plus I got a permit and I'm legal through all of it. So if anybody has any complaints, I'm like, here, I'm approved. Go away, please. Yeah. You mentioned being a little OCD, so... Maybe that OCD plays in your favor when you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Certainly. Because you certainly don't want to do all this work and spend all this money and have somebody come and shut you down, which yeah. is, you know, the major problem for Lidge and all these other guys. You know, I just thought I'm going to do everything is completely legit and by the book 
and with the serendipity of not having any of the other issues, I kind of skate by. So you grew up in Evansville, Indiana. Yep. And ultimately, your exposure to recording and the re recording business didn't come until later because of your experience in college. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I didn't really know much about the music business, but I was way into music super young. My brother, both of my brothers got me into all kinds of stuff that was way cooler than the average six-year-old was listening to. <laughs> you know, one brother got me into Metallica and the Scorpions, and the other one got me into Bowie and the Eagles and the Jay Giles Band and all kinds of cool stuff. When everybody else was listening to Disco Duck or whatever, I was you know, <laughs> ro rocking out to the Rolling Stones while playing video games on his Atari 800. <laughs> so I was huge into music. My brother had a nice stereo and he let me use it as much as I wanted to. We shared a bedroom at the time. He was seven years older than me. So, you know, he had a job and was going out and buying equipment all the time and taught me how to use it. And, you know, the love of music grew from that. And when I was 10 or 11, I started pushing lawnmowers to make money to start buying my own speakers. That's when like the problem started because every, I was just working for more audio equipment all the time and bought these speakers and then bought some bigger speakers and made a deal with my brother to borrow his much bigger speakers for a while. And I thought, man, sound is cool. I was really fascinated by what happens to what you hear in the room as you move around. I, I noticed that the bass was huge against the wall, but it was gone in the middle. And I'm like, well, this is weird. I wonder if I pushed push the speakers back and the bass got bigger. I'm like, well, this is fascinating. I've got all kinds of things to do to try this and try that and try different directions. I had a uh, Techniques, I think, a real garbage graphic equalizer, but it had a microphone input to calibrate with their little touch sensitive EQ setting things. And I thought, well, this headphone's a backwards microphone, I think. So I just plugged it in and I made a bunch of noise into it and it showed up on the meters and I ended up setting it up on my, my headboard and try to shoot my little room when I was 14 years old, adjusting uh, wow. frequency response. And of course there was a pair of costs over the ear headphones. So the results were terrible because there's nothing <laughs> at all close to microphone linearity out of that. But the idea was there and I tweaked from that and did something that I thought was cool. And for a kid that can't even drive yet, that was the coolest thing ever. Wow. I went from that thinking I might major in physics and get into speaker design. And I was thinking about doing that. I was going to college at the University of Evansville. And my brother's friend was up visiting who was at school at MTSU. And my brother, Matt, came over and said, man, you need to hear what Jeff's doing. Jeff explained to me what was going on in the recording industry department there. And like light bulb moment, I'll have to go do that. So I made the application, transferred the next year and started the recording program there and, you know, moved on through that progression on into the real world. That's interesting. I wonder where you would have been today had you gone the physics route and speaker design. And we very well could run into you at NAMM, but you could be working for one of the speaker manufacturers or creating your own speaker line. Yep, totally. And I have no interest in that now because lots of people do a really great job at that. And instead, I get to be a critic on other people's music and make it sound the way I want to, which is way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> So you spent, what, it was about four years assisting with Reed shipping? Yeah, I think so. Three or four. What were you doing? Plugging stuff in, setting things up, getting, at the time he was, 
Well, I guess he's still, he was mostly mixing, doing a little bit of tracking. Before I started working with him, he hooked me up with the people at MCA Music Publishing. And I was a staff assistant there for a year or a year and a half. And then shortly after that, I moved next door to Soundstage and was a staff guy there. And the whole time I was hanging out with Reed and the engineer he was working with, Rick Will at the time, just being around, you know. And then when the, the workload for Reed became big enough, he said, hey, man, let's go. And I said, okay. And I told Soundstage that my time was up and that was met with a couple of surprises, but that was where the work was. And Soundstage for the night weekend guy that I was, was not nearly as good as going being the all day, everyday assistant for, you know, my buddy Reed. So we took off on that pretty quickly. So I did that for three or four years. And I had thought about going into mastering when I was in college. And at some point I thought, you know what? No, I want to be in the studio where all the cool stuff is happening and where the magic is. That turned out to not be what I wanted. Did you discover that th through working with Reed? Yeah, and I, I'm not a musician. I know what's what I like sonically, but I don't play music, but I know what sounds good. And I would sit behind him in the sweet spot at Recording Arts, and I would just, like, every day for a couple of years, I had a great imaging location listening to great mixes being done. And, you know, I heard the forest a lot better than I heard the trees. Interesting. Moving on from there... I don't know. I just, I just liked it. So I started buying gear and building up my little studio at home. And I had endless supply of great mixes that I could just, you know, nick and take home and work on for a little bit and bring it in and play it for him. I'm like, Hey man, what do you think of that? I was like, well, that's pretty good. You should do that some more. So I just started doing it. And for like my last six months with Reed, I was mastering at night and on the weekends when I was home or when we were had time off. And there was a time where the assisting work was getting in the way of the mastering work instead of vice versa. It was going on for a few months, and then I got a kidney stone, Ooh. which was the impetus for the guy who we'd been training to replace me. We're like, Lee, I'm going to the hospital. You're on, buddy. So we uh, got the, the next guy up and kind of took that little break I had while I was suffering through that stupid kidney stone to make the transition to full-time mastering. Best kidney stone anybody's ever had. That's the best kidney stone ever. I want to ask you about working with Reed. Reed is, from my observations, super smart. And just, uh, I don't know, there's there's a lot of great things going on there with Reed. He's, like I say, he's smart. He seems very business savvy. And he does great work and uh, really, really knows how to navigate the business. So I'm curious if there's any key things that you learned from him in that time period that you kind of hold with you to this day. Yeah, some of it is probably stuff that made us work together well from the beginning is that think three steps ahead of whatever's happening now and anticipate the next need. Be personable, but don't talk too damn much. Reed's a provocative guy and likes to say some fun things and I like saying some fun things too. And sometimes you get to ruffle a feather and make a connection and sometimes you don't. But I don't know, the culture that we developed when we were working together was very quick and a lot of the intricacy of it went unseen by the people because it was all about making it comfortable and slick and seamless for the people that we're working with. And I think that has carried on with me forever. Like if I've got a problem or if I'm holding something up, people don't need to know every issue that's going on. They just want their stuff to be right. So, 
you sit there and you get your problem solved and you make it right and you do it with a smile and don't try to let on that it's been a frustrating day or that somebody's being a doofus and wants some silly little change that's never going to be heard by anybody else on earth but the guy's cat. And it's a service business. And the thing is, people need to be feeling like they're well-treated and they're cared for and that they're heard when they say stuff. I kind of have a thing where if anybody has an idea of something they want to hear, it's worth exploring and not like, ah, no, that doesn't matter. Like, well, maybe it does matter. Maybe it's a good idea. And it's give them what they want world because there's a million mastering guys out there. There's probably three on my street. So anybody who says, no, that's too much or I'm not going to do it or whatever, they can go find them. So I try to make sure everybody gets what they want all the time. And the bonus of mastering for you is that you're not interfacing so much with the client, I, I would assume. And that there's also, unlike a mix engineer, you're not dealing with as many micro changes as a mix engineer would. Is that about right for you? That is totally right. A lot of times people will say, you know, like the mixers that I've known forever and have a rapport with, they'll be like, oh man, these guys were a handful. They had a million changes and this guy was this and that guy was that. I've found that for the most part, they work all that stuff out of their systems in the mix and the mix is what they want. And I enhance all of that. So I make all the stuff that they want to hear sound better. So there may be, can we get a little more of this or can you make the vocal pop out or can we have a little less thump on this or a little more point on that? But those are little teeny tiny tweaks that are super easy for me to do. It's not like we're like, we want vocals here or we don't want vocals there or the bass playing is out of time or the drummer sucks or whatever. Those headaches are all sorted out way before it gets to me. So I kind of get the end of their best thing and then I just get to polish it up. Yeah, that's uh, it's funny you say that. I had an incident the other day where somebody sent me something and said, you know, can you mix this? And I heard it and immediately there was just like a major timing issues. And I thought, wow, okay, that's going to take a while for me to sort out. So I'm like, oh, so you'd like me to co-produce this is what you're saying. <laughs> right. So I said, okay, well, I, I've adjusted my price accordingly based on, I, I think you got some timing issues here. And they came back and it was... I, I think they felt like I was accusing them of something. And I pointed out, I said, I'm hearing it here in these sections. These all these other sections are great. Well, okay, well, how much would it cost if we dealt with it? And then we started to get into that conversation. And then it was, then it ultimately was, well, okay, we're going to go work on it. And ultimately they hired somebody else, which I'm actually very grateful for because. Sometimes headache avoidance is as important as getting the job. Yeah, no kidding. It's it's right. I mean, would you would you agree with that? It's it's okay to lose a job over you being particular and honest with a client. Yeah, sometimes people don't want to pay what my rate is, and this, you know sometimes there's a little working with that. But sometimes you get to a point where you're like, no, that's what my rate is, and somebody else is going to pay me that rate for this day of work, and you don't and you want to pay half that. Like I'm not doing that. And invariably, the people that are trying to beat me up on a rate are amateurs that have a million clicks in their songs and weird fades and stuff sounds terrible. And I'm putting 35 DSers on things to try to manage the high end, not actually 35 DSers, by the way. But generally, people who don't fuss about that know what a real rate is for real work. And I've you know kind of move away from that. But there's always somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. They get a reference from 
the next guy for this guy. And they sometimes have to learn a little bit. And occasionally a no comes up. And most of the time I say, well, this is the rate for this. And they go, okay, let me go talk to somebody. Then they come back and do it. Yeah. Never upset if something goes one way or another or to somebody else. Because like I said before, there's a million people doing this. And sometimes they go somewhere else and they're like, oh, you know, kind of like Dan better. And sometimes you're like, well, I'd like this guy better than Dan and they stay. So, you know, there's a flavor for everybody. Yeah. It's easy to get emotional in this business. Some people, I've expressed different emotions over the years. I've witnessed other people do it. Sometimes I've seen people get territorial and complain and, oh man, why'd they go to that person? They did, they did it with me last time. And how do you think you deal with your own emotions in the business and cope with success and or failure or not failure, but loss when a client goes to somebody else? I used to be a lot more affected by that than I am now. A little bit of it comes from being busy enough to not care because there's always more new people and I bring on more new people than I lose. But sometimes people move on to somebody who's cheaper. Over the years, my rates have gone up and some people have gone like, well, we just can't afford that anymore. So they go to the next new guy, which is great. Congratulations for them. And then I go pick up somebody else who's been around for a while and, and I'm the new guy. So it, it comes around and goes around. And as long as you're not in the point where your business is waning, like my business is growing every year, every single year. So if anybody that I lose, there's two people to replace them. So it took a little bit of hardening of the heart for that, Pat Benatar, thank you. <laughs> and, it, and it took a little time. And occasionally there's somebody who's like, man, they told me they were bringing me that record three years ago. And then you see a picture on Facebook of them doing it with somebody else. I'm like, eh, well, that sucks. But I'm sitting here working on a record that somebody wants me to work on right now. So you throw that in the can and get on to the work of the day. Yeah, that sounds like good advice. I've talked about it before, being influenced by what we see on social media, being jealous of other, other peers and friends. And I've always said, take that energy and turn it into what you apply to your own work and stop worrying about what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What was that like, the transition from exiting Reed's operation and moving into your own from um, setting up your own business and going out on your own? Was, was there a lot of fear? No, not really. At the time, I was single. I was living. I wasn't single. I wasn't married. I had a girlfriend. But I'd been living super cheap. I had a teeny tiny little cheap house in Antioch. My bills were super low. I'd been working six to seven days a week with Reed for three and a half years and had done pretty well and managed to save up a little dough. The first, it was probably June or so, June or July, where the kidney stone happened that caused the jettison to mastering full-time. And I didn't make much money that first year, but I had a lot of people interested in trying me because there are people that I'd met 
working with Reed and doing other little engineering things and letting them know, hey, mastering's coming on. And they'll like, hey, we'll send you a song when we get there. So I had a little bit of security built in and I probably charged a couple of things on some credit cards along the way, but things picked up pretty quickly. So it didn't take long for it to be sufficient enough to, to carry the load. And I lived cheap enough. I didn't have a lot of bills to pay. My car was paid for. My house payment was pocket change compared to what it is these days. Just kind of weathered it. I wasn't really afraid of it because I was confident that my work was good. My only real downfall at the time was not being chatty enough to go out and meet new people and get more work. Is that an issue in in Nashville specific? Because it seems like every time I go there, maybe it's just because it's Nam, but there just seems to be a lot of parties. Oh, yeah. I just wasn't very socially active at the time. I kind of had the impression that the work's good. It'll come to you. And it was, and it did, but not as much as it does when you know 10 times as many people. So that's not a Nashville thing. That was a me thing. Mm. And when I came up, I didn't go work at a mastering studio where I was exposed to engineers and their workflow and producers and potential clients. I was me in my house, you know, 30 minutes away from Music Row. So I I knew a lot of people from the clientele that I met working with Reed and somehow people from out of town and online found me, I guess from seeing my name on records or looking, Googling me or whatever, don't usually find out where people come from in that regard, but sometimes I do. How do you find working remotely with people, the communication and the back and forth about the details? It's easy. 99% of it's emails and text messages. If they have their number in my phone, I'll answer it probably. But for the most part, you know, use it an email or a text message and things can be gone back and forth and explained really quickly. And I like having it all in email so that everything is in one place. I can go back and see what's in a conversation because, you know, I've currently got six projects going on. And if somebody wants this detail and that detail and that detail, I need to go back and look at it. And if I try to write down notes in one place and I've got texts in one place and a voicemail here and an email there, like something gets missed. So I try to get everything steered into emails. And then I have kind of a punch list of things that I'm working on more immediately. And then I'll go through at the end of the day and like, is there anything else that I have to address? What do I need to look at tomorrow? But almost all of it is just chit-chatting from my computer. Interesting. When you started your business, did you have a business plan? Did you plot anything out like officially? No, I just bought a bunch of gear and started mastering records. (laughs) I I didn't have a, a framework of how it was done by other mastering places. My movement into doing it was like, well, if I'm going to be a mastering guy, I have to be able to make a CD for manufacturing. Okay, that's a PM CD. It's a Redbook CD. What do I need to make a Redbook CD? Click, 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 find that, download that, learn how to use it. I mean, I knew how to use the gear. So it was kind of like, what do I need to be able to provide, learn how to do that, and then say, hey, I can do it. And when somebody hired me to do it, I did it and I liked it. So other than that, there was no business plan other than try to get a lot of work and get people to pay me. And what about your workflow over the years? You know, I know that there's a million different ways one can, well, not a million, but several different ways one can master a record in, out of the box, hybrid, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. A lot of different choices to be made and to each his own. I'm not going to cast judgment on any of them. Did that change and shift and f- flex over the years? Definitely. Refine the workflow quite a lot. When I got started, it was use what I've got to get to where I need to get to. So I used a two computer system, a playback and a record. And I used, you know, a Power Mac G4 450 for my playback with Nuendo on it. 
and it would go digital out through my rack, convert to analog, go through the rack, convert back in to the catch machine. I would record that in Nuendo, and then I would take those files and put those in WaveBurner Pro, and then assemble and do final plugin tweaks on that after getting my general tone with the outboard gear. And that was clunky for me. Doing recalls was getting two machines up, running stuff back through. Coming from a multi-track world of working in Pro Tools, I wanted something that felt like that, but I wanted to be able to treat individual regions on their own without having to have 35 tracks for every little chunk. And in my research, I found Sequoia, which is the hopped up version of Samplitude from Magix. And it's a multi-track editor, but every little region of audio, which they call an object, has a plugin section. I'm like, well, that's cool because I want to put this on that song and that EQ on that song and a compressor and an EQ on that song and a DSer on that song, but I don't want it to be on a stack of tracks. I just want them all in a row. And if I want to do a different mixed overall treatment, I can do that on one track and do a different overall treatment on another track and then have the limiter on the master on the way out and drive into that if that's how that works. So the workflow kind of dictated the system that I got. So now I play out of Sequoia through the rack, record back into a track right next to it. So I can always see which one it was that I'm using. And if I need to drop a piece back in or do a replacement of a mix because they made a mix tweak, drop it back into that same spot, copy the level, run it through, copy the plugins to it, make any tweaks that I need to. And it's super, super slick to make tweaks all the way up to the very last minute of the end of a project. You've gone through many permutations over the years, I assume, of, of various things. Really just a couple. I kind of found this and I'm like, yep, that's what I want. And like I, I got into Sequoia at version 7 and I'm on 13 now and it's up to 15. So yeah, it's a probably 12 years I've been using Sequoia, mm -hmm. something like that. So, you know, in any business like ours, having expenses helps with the ultimate tax bill. So you seem like a guy who is very resolute in, in your decision-making and likes your system to be in place. So do you acquire gear and how do you handle that? How do you handle not only your own gear lust, but also having expenses to show to offset your taxes? Well, I don't completely subscribe to the expenses help your taxes things. If you spend $10,000 to save $3,000 on taxes, you still spend $10,000. I mean, if you need something, that's great. I don't subscribe to the spend money just to save money on taxes because if I need the money to pay for life or dog surgery or a roof or whatever, you can't build a roof with a tax write-off. So mm -hmm. I don't have terrible gear lust, or if I do, I have pretty good self-control. I don't use a ton of outboard gear. I don't use a whole ton of plugins. Like I've got, you know, a massive passive and a millennia NSEQ2 for outboard EQ and some tone control and compression from the Rupert Neve Designs master bus processor and a smart C2. And that's kind of the outboard stuff. And those make all cool noises. And with between that and the plugins that I've got, I get where I need to go. I haven't I'm not the guy that needs 37 different types of EQ to get to where I want to go. And I don't feel like that is necessary to do a good job in mastering. It's fun and I'm mm -hmm. not mad at it at all. I mean, I'd love to go out and buy an unfair child and a, a couple of NIF EQs and, you know, all, all this fancy expensive stuff. But I've also got 
I want to retire someday, so I'm not going to spend all my money on gear. You know, I want to go on a vacation with my wife. We haven't had a vacation in like 12 years. So we're spending money on some other things because my work on the gear that I've got is great. So if I find something cool or I find a good deal, I'll grab it. But I'm not I'm not a, a gear churner like some of our friends are, which <laughs> is seriously not mad at it. And I benefit from it, as we can see from this mic in front of my face right now. But, you know, that's that's really not where I am to be uh, digging into gear constantly. Okay. You mentioned money. I, I do want to talk about that a little bit. What is your overall philosophy with money you already said you're you're not a spend it on gear as you get it like many people but do you have a, a plan of attack for the future for saving for retirement for saving for emergencies do you have a a, a particular financial philosophy i'd say i'm pretty loosely based on the whole dave ramsey philosophy awesome we first time i've said this to anybody my wife and i just got 100 percent well, everything but the house, we got out of debt. Like we paid off our student loan. I've got my studio paid off. All my gears paid off. Our cars are paid off. And man, we took such a huge relaxing breath when we got that done. Knocking out those few things, chipped like $1,500 a month off of our nut. So we have fewer bills. Life's a little easier. We get to go to a couple nicer restaurants. And now we're starting to work into putting some money into some retirement. We've got a, a decent little emergency fund. If both of us didn't work a day for a couple of months, we'd make it by. But neither of us have ever had more than two days off in a row since we've met each other. So there's always more work coming. And now we're working on starting to put some away, do some investing and do some pretty secure stuff. And then later on, I'd like to put some investments in some little more aggressive stuff. But that's down the road a little bit. Like we're just on the out of debt victory lap. So I have to say many friends of mine who were deep in debt and got involved in the whole Dave Ramsey. I can't remember what the name of the product is. Total money makeover probably. Total money makeover. Thank you. Everybody I talked to that got involved with that has had great success with it. And man, it's such a, when you have no debt, except for like maybe your house. Yeah. It's, it is. It's a huge burden. It was a huge burden for me lifted off my shoulders when I paid off my last studio debacle and paid off all my credit cards. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge emotional change. There's such a weight lifted. And, you know, if something goes wrong or we, we both happen to have a slow moment, it's not a big deal because we don't have a bunch of credit card bills to pay. That $500 a month student loan payment is gone. We can, we can weather it. And like all we have is, you know, the mortgage and insurance and, you know, food and pet surgery, which I just had this week. <laughs> yeah, which we all know that can be an arm and a leg right there. Uh -huh. Taking care of our, a our pets. arms and a leg over the years. And <laughs> it's one of those things where we have to do it. And, you know, we had a $5,000 surgery for one of our dogs the second or third year we were in our new our new house, which was you know, a new world of expenses. The mortgage was three times what the last house was. And my wife's business at the time kind of fallen apart. She lost a couple corporate accounts for, she was a personal trainer at the time. A few things kind of went to pieces there. So I was carrying the boat pretty much on my own. And the surgery came up. We're like, God, we have to do it. And it turned out to be for the best because what we thought was terrible wasn't. And it has been six years ago now. And that dog is still you know, rooting around for cicadas out in the yard right now. 
So having now the emergency fund in place to handle something like that is such a load because we found out what that surgery was going to cost and our hearts sunk. We're like, God, how are we going to afford that? And that's important. And that's an emotional load for a pup that we love. And now that we've worked to get all this debt out, if that comes up again, like, well, that's expensive, but we can weather it. So we're cool. I love being out of debt. It is so much fun. And having a little emergency fund to keep us from needing to go into debt for anything other than a catastrophe really puts a lot of a lot of comfort in our lives. And we talk about it like, God, it feels so good to be out of that. Yeah, I, I can't I couldn't agree more with you about that. You mentioned your wife was a personal trainer at that time, which leads me to my next question. What about health and fitness and and just overall well-being? Because we all do the same shit. We sit in front of computers and we sit in chairs. Sit all day long. Right now, my main exercise is walking my dogs in the morning. My treadmill broke. I love to to run on my treadmill and watch Formula One racing, but I'm not a light fellow. So my treadmill kind of wore out and the motor's making some noises that I'm pretty sure are not in spec. So <laughs> we've stopped that, but I go out and run and we've got some little training area set up on our house, in our house with some dumbbells and she does a lot of yoga and I walk the dogs and run outside and, you know, do YouTube exercise videos and stuff. And try to stay moving. I like to get up a lot during the day to take ear breaks, leg breaks, take my dogs outside and let them run around and burn off some energy. But it's a challenge and it's so easy to eat like garbage. And I mean, I was late getting set up for this today. So I stopped for some garbage to eat here so that I wouldn't have like a low blood sugar moment in the middle of our podcast. <laughs> but I also, since I have my studio at home, you know, I've, I can make a choice to keep healthy food around and I don't have to go out to restaurants every day. So I save a lot of money and I eat a lot of salads and eat leftovers from the night before. And we cook really healthy. And I've lost total of my, of my days. I've lost about 70 pounds from my most sedentary moment, which I felt terrible. I was having anxiety problems because I was worried about having a heart attack because I was in terrible shape, which made me worry more about having a heart attack. I'm like, this is stupid. I've got to get off of my ass. And I did. And part of it was because of my awesome trainer wife at the time. We did P90X together for a while before our wedding. And over time, I learned enough to kind of roll my own. So I was like, after I walk the dogs, I'll see her off to work and I'll go over into our gym and just do like a 30 or 45 minute workout of somebody on YouTube who puts videos on there. You know, they're, they're free. Then they're great. You know, 30 minutes and burn 500 calories and you don't have to think about it. You just do what the lady on the beach is doing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's awesome. You get, you know, a great beach vibe. It's kind of a nice little relaxing thing. And after 30 minutes of that, going to sit in a chair, you sit up a little straighter, your muscles are all stimulated and it's, it's really great. And it's, I think it's not done by enough people. I would agree. There's a lot of very unhealthy people in our business a lot of temptations to just be lazy and, you know, work a hard day and Flop come on home. The couch. And yeah, exactly. Or or go out and drink three beers. Or more. Yeah. And yeah. we've we've cut down our drinking considerably. That has been a really, really big help too. Like we weren't going out and getting hammered, but you know, I'd have two or three drinks after work, just like sitting on the couch with my wife most nights. And we're like, man, we're sitting around putting a lot of empty calories into us. 
my doctor said, you know, your blood pressure, it's not high, but it's not low. And stopping drinking and getting very regular exercise, he says, I see a difference. You're doing better. Keep doing it. You're doing a great job. And it's got everything, like every little measurement has been right where he wants it. Yeah. And I got a little bit of that, like, oh, crap, they're taking my blood pressure, which made my blood pressure go up with a little anxiety. So even got it down enough that when that happens, he's not bothered by it, which makes me not bothered by it, which keeps it from going up. So anxiety is a dick. <laughs> I'm always freaked out when they take my blood pressure as well. So I have the opposite reaction. I actually start thinking of being on a beach and life is very easy. Mm -hmm. And then I turn and I look and... I say, how's that? And they're like, oh, you look good. You look good. I've had exactly that. When I was at my heaviest and was the most stressed out, my doctor said, okay, this can't be right. If you're not feeling this and this and this and this, this number doesn't make sense. So he said, okay, take a few breaths. Think about your favorite vacation thing, your beach spot. So I thought about this cabin that my wife and I go to in Gatlinburg for anniversaries sometimes and like made a conscious effort to relax and chill out. And it dropped like 50 points in 10 minutes. So which told me like all of this is in my head and not in my body because I can drop my blood pressure that much just by listening to a doctor say chill out. But, you know, saying chill out in the office and chilling out in life all the time when you're in the music business. And back then I was, things were tighter and there was debt to deal with and all that stuff. So it was an anxious time. But exercise and eating better and drinking less actually affects that. And I feel better now than I have ever. I can go out and run five miles if I want to, which is ludicrous considering there is a time when climbing a bunch of stairs kind of left me a little winded. Like I was in not great shape for a little bit. Wow. I can't run five miles. Well, at least I don't want to run five miles unless I'm being chased. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it happens in a record time, but <laughs> you know, I can do it and come home and be functional in life, which usually my number is like three, three and a half. And that's treadmill running, which is much easier than outside running. And, you know, since I'm 250-ish, 250 adjacent, that's hard on a guy's knees. So the treadmill's bouncy and I get to watch my racing and I'm woefully behind on my racing because my treadmill's broken and uh, that's my my balance of life. I need to get sorted out, but I don't know. It's It's a lot better to be moving before you're old enough that it's hard to get moving again. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. We're almost out of time. I got a few more questions for you, but mentors, I'm assuming that 
some of the people like Reed that you've worked for have been mentors in your life. Is there anybody outside of the recording world that you know personally that has been a mentor to you in making decisions about your recording life? I'm a pretty stubborn, do-it-my-own-way kind of guy. So there have been, from outside of recording, maybe my ex-wife's dad. He's kind of a business genius, but he didn't know how the music business worked. But he's a, he was a good guy to talk to about, like, value yourself, value your time, the work you do is valuable. And if it's not valuable to that guy, but it is valuable to that guy, cater to the guy that values it. If somebody is jerking you around or wasting your time, maybe that's not the person that you want to work with. That's great advice. The rest of it has kind of been a journey of trial and error, which in itself is probably a bit of an error because so many people come up with people doing the thing that they do and can give them good advice that is relevant to the business. I wasn't a social guy. I didn't really like talking to strangers too much. And now it's really hard to get me to shut up. But I don't know. I stammer about it. I have so not a clue what to say about it. Yeah. I kind of just stumbled through it and I just came out with my feet on the floor. Honestly, do you ever just get bored with mastering? No, it's a different thing every day. Sometimes it's a little frustrating if something needs a lot of fixing and it's Mm -hmm. not just a straight enhancement project. But I, just, I love like getting the thing up to where it rocks. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you're like, okay, there's nothing I'm going to do to make this better. This sounds awesome. And you get to send it out and, you know, you get the feedback saying, sweet, we're done. Like, that's the best. So I do get tired of cleaning clicks and pops out of stuff when people have a, a singer that's splatty or their edits are bad. And that kind of grates on the psyche a little bit. But, you know, it's nothing a 15 minute break throwing a stick with a dog can't fix. And in the end, they need it to sound great. And whether I'm frustrated a little bit because of all the, I want to say sloppy edits, because a lot of times it's sloppy edits or crossfades that aren't good. And it's the housekeeping of the process and not the putting the EQ on and dial in that low end just right. But, you know, it's still better than digging a ditch. I'd rather do this than go out and work a job with a boss. Oh, yeah. Of course, this just means I have a new boss every single day. But, you know, when you when you run your own business, you kind of get to do it your own way as long as you keep everybody happy and manage everybody's expectations. I'd rather have a new boss every day. Yeah, I'll take it. And, Absolutely. You know, and, and today I say, you know what, I'm going to stop and do a podcast for a little while. You know, there's nobody like, what are you doing over there? You're getting your work done? Like, yeah, I'm going to get it done. I'll work a little later today. But everything's going to get done. Do you ever get drawn or tempted to, to participate in mixing or recording? Nope. Mm. Not a bit. Not a bit. Not not suited for it. Somebody else is better at that than me. You know, I've been sitting in front of these speakers for so long that I know 90 guys that I would hire. If I was playing or recording something, I'd call somebody else. I wouldn't even do it for myself if it needed to be good. I mean, I can I can stumble through recording something, but you know, I don't have the, the rig for it. Somebody else is going to be faster. Never tuned a vocal in my life. Like, I'm not, the, I'm not the guy for that job. Yeah. Plus, you had to borrow a mic for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That was uh, Ryan Hewitt that lent you that, right? Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Well, Dan, it's it's been great to chat with you. I'm glad that we could make this happen. And just for the audience, this probably would have happened at some point in the future, but I think it happened because of going out, of Dan going out to a party, of me going out to Nashville, going out to a party, and networking and meeting people and talking shop and making arrangements. And that's how this interview happened. So I want to stress that, you know, we often talk about networking, 
And this is a key component of that, or, or this is a key result of networking right here. So, so great to run into you, Dan, at, at uh, Addiction Studios there in Nashville. And I'm glad that we can make this happen. So thank you very much for being on the show. To the point of networking, it's so much more important than I gave it credit for when I got started. I, di I didn't care about it. I thought it was lame. I didn't like going out and talking to strangers. I didn't have the confidence in myself, I think, to to speak from any authority on anything. The time came where I'm like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I can crack a joke. I'm going to start going to parties and talking to strangers. And God, I wish I'd have started doing that 15 years ago. There's no telling where I'm doing great. I'm really happy with where my business is, but there's no telling how much more growth I could have had if the chit-chatting that I've done for the last seven or eight years had been something I'd started seven or eight years before that. And to boot, I've got a, a stack a mile high of great friends that let me borrow their ridiculous microphone on zero notice, send me tons of work that's really cool, cooler than the work that I worked on before I talked to people. Like, it's just the most important thing to go out and find some friends that that do the stuff that you do. And, you know, I know a bunch of people and some are tighter friends than others. And I'm not the guy that needs to be everybody's friend, but I'm absolutely cool to anybody that comes in front of me. And, you know, you develop rapports and those rapports that you make with that friend will lead to six more friends and a recommendation for that. And it just sprawls out like the roots of a tree. Like probably heard that a million times before, but it's because it's true. Like go out and talk to people. You know, I had to make it a challenge to myself to talk to strangers and, and be just be more outgoing instead of being a hermit. Networking works in, in many magical ways and it brought us together. So I'm really happy that we could make that happen. Yeah, me too. It's great to meet you. Well, I'll let you go. I know you got work to do, but thanks again, Dan. It's great to meet you. And thanks for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Dan Scheich here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith for his lovely voice. And I want to thank you for listening week after week after week. Keep coming back. Spread the word. Head on over to workingclassaudio.com and sign up on our email list. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 